0: Revdivers. Kim and I are always excited to chat with you, but we're more excited today because we're answering a question from a fellow Rev Diver. So we got a question in about someone who had an idea for an RCM product or for a way to innovate in the healthcare industry. They were kind of nebulous. And they wanted to know how they could go about that. What does innovation in the healthcare industry look like? So for me, there's no one better to answer that question than Julie Collins. Julie is an innovation consultant and National Science Foundation I-Corps faculty member. And I am so pleased to have her on the show today. Julie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you both for having me. Taya, it's great to see you again.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm, I am I tell you what, I was so nervous before this call. Usually we're just prepping questions and I felt an odd need today to make sure that my homework was also done.
1: <laughs> your homework and your interviews, did you get them in and did you find insights?
0: Exactly right. It really will keep you to task. Um, so, Kim, I have had the privilege of going through the ICOR program, which was led by Julie. It was absolutely phenomenal. But Kim has not gone through ICOR; she has some limited experience with that. I didn't know if you could kind of talk about what ICOR is. Absolutely. So, in
1: a nutshell, ICOR is a structured approach to uncovering customer unmet needs. So, it's just a methodology and approach to saying, what do I think about the market, use and adoption, interfacing with the people that are actually gonna use and adopt and be a part of the healthcare ecosystem for new products and services, and iterating and figuring out whether or not you're actually identifying a problem that actually could be solved by the solution you've envisioned, or perhaps you're overvaluing the space. Perhaps that's not somewhere where innovation should sit. And it usually, if you're a part of a structured process like ICOR, it comes with coaching. So it's a coaching and instructional program that gives you a methodology and requires you to conduct a hundred interviews over the course of eight weeks, which is no small feat.
2: Wow, no. and you know. <laughs> it, it seems very intense. I remember as as Taya was going through that process, um, she and I chatted about it very briefly. Uh, but something that you've kind of mentioned as part of you know the 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 foundation of I-Corps is um, customer discovery. Um, could you share with us a little bit more about I guess your 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 kind of values when it comes to customer discovery and and what innovators need to think about?
1: Absolutely. So, first off, let's just sort of unpack the term customer discovery, which we owe a lot of credit to Steve Blank for writing the Startup Owners Manual and really launching this movement to have a structured approach for interfacing with customers. In the healthcare space, there are a lot of knowns. There are reimbursement and regulatory issues that are sort of defined, But there's a lot of unknowns that can still be uncovered in terms of what physicians value in terms of time and clinical outcome savings and what patients they'd actually be willing to try a new product or solution on, as well as other sort of clinical or operational details that might help define where is the best opportunity for launching a new product or service. So customer discovery in short is really just writing out your list of assumptions about what the opportunity looks like. And then asking yourself, who could I talk to to answer some of those questions? And then it's sort of a reverse engineering process because instead of going and asking sort of a scripted list of questions or putting out a, a survey through SurveyMonkey or something like that, you actually go and understand a day in the life of the person who is going to use or adopt that product or service. And you become the person who's looking for the pain points and looking for the gain opportunities that could happen and taking all of that information and going back to your solution and saying, okay, does my solution meet a customer priority? And if they were to look at that solution, would my solution meet their criteria for adoption? And actually putting some sort of metrics around there. So it's a really structured approach to thinking about and having conversations. Now I talk about structured approach, but it's also an art. when we are providing the methodology for this course, we are teaching people how to have open-ended and discovery type conversations. Um, It's one thing to put a script together and go ask a series of questions, you know, that just get to yes, no answers, but actually trying to get customers to talk about the places where they really would be open to new products and solutions, there's a lot of art to that. So customer discovery kind of, embodies both the science and and the art of
2: that. You know, as I think about the the way that you've structured this program um, and what's happening in the industry right now with technology, especially on the RCM side, we're seeing an explosion of predictive analytics and we're seeing an explosion of telehealth services an explosion of stackable um, RCM platforms um, that, you know, as, as I think about the the use cases for for those types of technologies and platforms, um, folks who are innovating that type of technology, they would they would be well served going through a process like that. What well, I would say
1: the key to a process like this is that when you have especially a platform or some sort of new software, there's um, an assumption that a large number the market is sort of huge. Anybody who fits XYZ category could use our service. But that's not really the question that customer discovery is meant to answer. It's supposed to identify what we call a beachhead, but that sort of logical group of customers that all they all have a same set of design of defined unmet needs. And they would be the logical group that would really want to use something new and novel. And they're going to be willing to take a risk on something that's mostly ready for production, but it, there might be a few hiccups and their problems are severe enough that they're willing to you know, kind of bear with you as you work out the beta product, et cetera, and really launch something novel because it hits the way that they're thinking about having to, like you guys talk about, make new revenue, or it hits some sort of clinical outcome that they are tasked maybe the system has said, you need to hit this clinical outcome because we're getting measured on it. And you really understand how you're positioning that product and service with that group of Beachhead customers first, and not trying to boil the ocean and say, well, anybody who uses or has this type of job, well, anybody could use it. And then you just, you know, we call it pay and spray. You just spend a lot of money on marketing and just hope that somebody's going to sign up for what you have, right? So we're trying to, it's, it's a risk mitigation process to go against that.
0: Absolutely and you know I think for for me when we were going through this program and so I was involved as a principal investigator so a lot of my job was not to like establish sort of what the product was that they were going after and all that it was more on the side of you know is this a fit do we have the right beachhead am I um, you know am I supporting the interview process in a non-biased way And it spoke to, for me, a lot of the things that we do in revenue cycle um, that Kim and I talk about all over the country, two main things that come up all the time, one being confirmation bias, which we talked about heavily in the i program, but the other being the importance of maintaining project momentum. And I think that those two things um, you learn so much in the i program, but I think they're so applicable across whatever you're doing. If you are not going to complete the project, All of it is a waste of time. And if you're not setting out on the right foot because you didn't perform those elements of sort of breaking your baby, as you know, as I learned in i are right, You're you're not really getting to the root cause or the root solution to somebody's pain point.
1: Absolutely. Um, I love the idea. Of we, t- we have this sort of ugly baby complex, right? Everybody thinks that their new invention is something um, amazing. They've come up with it. It's absolutely going to drive new revenue for your company. Hands down, you got it. Um, nobody's going to tell you your baby is ugly. Nobody's going to tell you, yeah, I don't need that. They're going to tell you it's great. And then they're just not going to write a check or the subscription's gonna end and they're just not gonna renew. And you're like, what What happened, right? So I think two things that you said, Taya, which are just so really, really important. One is that from an innovation perspective, companies need to have a focus on constantly assessing the market need of their current customers and startups need to be focused on an initial customer set. And then as you think about, as companies think about all of the upgrades or next products or version 2.0s that they could invest in, which ones would you want to? How do you have a down select process that's nimble and lean and allows you to shoot up a bunch of ideas, but then pick the ones that are actually viable to move forward? And the process of doing that, especially when you're a, a company and you're in execution mode, is that you have all these biases where you do things the way that you've always done them. Guess what we do in this, you know, in orthopedics, this is the way we do things. Right. And so then you just, you follow the same patterns and behaviors. And there has to be a little bit of a given take of, yes, but I'm trying to launch something new. So what am I missing? What do I not know? And making sure that you just really are keeping track of the places that you have assumptions that you actually haven't validated by interfacing with people in person. And it's, I mean, it's the same, like if you're in sales, people say like the first things that in sales that you should really establish is whether or not band Somebody has budget, authority, need, and timing. And in customer discovery, you're trying to determine who are the people that are involved in that use process and what is the unmet need? So that when your sales team goes on that sales process and you hear something that's, that's in the sweet spot of the need, you know, these are the customers I really need to be working hard with because I think a sale is actually gonna address what
0: they're doing, so. Yeah, I love how you just said that because um, one of the things that Kim and I do is help people find a product that fits their needs. And I listened to a call last week and the sales member um, was very much like, this is one of the top concerns in healthcare and everybody has an issue with this. And this is a big pain point. And I just thought I'm working with folks all day, every day and this is not on their top 50. Like, what are you talking about? Um, and so for me, it was like an immediate no and immediate hard pass because they were so out of touch with the customer base. And you know, I think that customer discovery component is so crucial. I think
1: it's really hard, especially in healthcare, because genuinely, people in healthcare are trying to service people who have underlying conditions. People have hearts to actually make clinical outcomes better. The reality is, is that healthcare is a business, and there is a set process by which you can buy and sell services in healthcare. And understanding where you actually can address—I mean, I, like right now, I'm working with a great company that has a new product or service that could be in sickle cell. And as much as she would love to launch this product or service right directly in the patient's home, the reality is that she may have to start with some sort of pharma partner or clinical trials approach before the market is going to be ready to adopt a really expensive machine and actually put it in every patient's home for constant screening, right? So we all have assumptions about where we want to best impact the patient that we're so passionate about, but the reality is that really understanding where that first launch place is, is is really important, and if you do that and do it well, then ultimately you can hit your bigger level outcomes that you want to hit in the future.
2: Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh, Julie, 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 this is, this has been, Uh, an amazing, um, time of, of learning and of, of sharing. And, uh, you know, as we get ready to, to, to close up, um, we absolutely love to share, um, with our audience, the, the, the wins, the successes, but then also some of the misses and, and not so great, um, you know, times throughout, uh, folks' careers and you have had a a very you know wide-ranging career and, and you're you're still kind of you know trudging away at at past that you're kind of blazing right now. Um would you would you mind sharing some lessons that you've learned throughout your career with our web divers?
1: Absolutely. Um there's I think with every person who's sort of in their midlife of career, there's lots of lessons learned. And I think if I were to think about the first one. It's for anybody who's new into the field and thinking about where to launch their career. It's just to be really open and to assess not where you think you should do something. Don't should yourself, but assess your skill sets and think where are you going to have strengths and where are you going to absolutely just thrive, right? Um, I can share from my own Career that I'm, the shooting was I was supposed to be an MD or a PhD. There was supposed to be a doctor at the end of my name. Um, and there are so many other things that are my strengths that are not in the minutiae and the details of memorization and tiny little cells and structures. Um, so I think that would be a really big one. I think in terms of just surrounding yourself also with really great people and letting the opportunities sort of come at you and be willing to try something new. I will tell you the only reason I am an innovation coach in this space and a lead faculty for the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health is that somebody came to me one day in my office when I was working in an accelerator and dropped, this was in the early 2000s, and dropped a bunch of books on my desk and said, read these and you need to join us to help teach this because the way you think and the way you talk and the way you address teams and the way that you coach naturally fits this. And so you need to go figure this out, (laughs) you know? So like just being open to those like sort of serendipitous moments where something falls in your lap and you really should just give it a go.
2: Okay, yeah, I I completely understand why you, you, you utilize Julie's brain as much as possible. (laughs) <laughs>
0: oh man, she. I, You know, it's. We don't always say this on the show, but you are one of our hashtag goals moments. Um, we we do have a few folks out there that you know, Cam and I. We're not going to have boy band posters up, but there's a couple of of <laughs> leaders in the industry that we just so look up to and admire, and you are definitely one of them.
1: Well, thank you very much. It was absolutely a pr- pleasure to speak with you guys. I am just so passionate about innovation and helping companies really provide structure and format to how they think about their innovation processes and seeing startups actually be successful. I think that's just one of I get to work with some of the brightest minds in the United States. Um, and it's a. I get to hear about new technology day in and day out that blows my mind. It is the coolest gig on the planet.
2: <laughs> well, Julie, where can where can our listeners learn more uh, about, you know, you and, um, you know, the organization. It's
1: great. So a couple of just quick notes, the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health do have sort of an exclusive program that is tied to NSF and NIH lineage opportunities. So you can learn more about their programs by simply Googling i and either NIH or i NSF and figure out what the programs look like. If you're interested in the approach, there's a Udacity course called Udacity 245, where Steve Blank puts together all of the how to build a startup videos. They are geared very much towards software and um, web and app driven, but the approach is really clean and clear. So if you just are interested in learning a little bit about business models and how do you investigate and make assumptions about your business models, that's a really easy place to start. And then you can always reach out to any NSF i faculty or member through LinkedIn. Um, all of us do outside work, um, and so you can kind of see the different experience sets and the different programs that people are a part of.
2: Oh my gosh, that is amazing. Thank you so much for being with us today, Julie. It's been an absolute pleasure having you.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. All right. Okay. Rev divers until we meet again. Keep diving into those rev cycles.